So one thing I wanted to go into is our last part is talking about threat assessments. It's your uh, CTM, right? Certified Threat Manager. Yes. So one thing I'm actually curious about is, you know, you mentioned about uh, anonymous versus, you know, when people sign their name for threat communications. So like based on what you've seen, like in terms of having an anonymous um, communication where it's like, you know, no one will find out who I am versus, okay, I'm putting my name to it. There's a different level of ownership to it, right? So what, what have you found with the different types of communications? Well, certainly uh, within settings like uh, college and, K- and uh, K-12 settings, mm-hmm. um, the things that most come to the forefront is when someone makes a direct threat. Yeah. But, uh, you know, get a gun, come to school and start shooting people. Um, while many, I mean, you never let that pass. Um, it's important to address why that's happened. It's not unusual that people who make direct threats don't necessarily carry them out. Um, They're they're saying, I need help. But sometimes, and this happens uh, often, or when when it happens, it can happen in workplace settings, it could happen in other settings, or in stalking cases, where someone just gets a note, and there's no name on it, we don't know where it comes from, and part of what we try to do, but it's a much more complicated uh, process and a more clinical process, is try to see what can we learn about that individual based upon their writings. Still, it very often comes down to good investigative work, which is a side of law enforcement to investigate many factors, but we also can look at psychological factors, uh, personality factors that may come out through one's writings through the combination of good investigation and understanding who we're looking for we've been able to identify that individual and hopefully get them on the right path and diverted from a path of potential targeted violence people have written about the different motivations for making threats Mm. some people make threats to intimidate other people to scare them to make them feel unsafe um, some people make threats for some outcome so they want to get something out of that threat um, there have been uh, looking at folks who make uh, in stalking cases where the writing is threatening but their their real purpose is to try to get closer to someone to try you know to associate when that person has no interest in associating. We've had some cases where it's basically around fantasy sexualized behavior that people are doing that. In their mind, they have an affiliation with a person that they've never met or don't have any affiliation with. And, and that their anonymous writings are more for self-gratification, but yeah. obviously in sending those out, it creates you know, panic and terror and anxiety in in the individual who receives those things, and they feel very threatened. As a certified threat manager, um, one of your unique parts is knowing the neuropsychology aspect of of managing threats. So I wonder how you found that management different from how 
the CTMs in the field usually deal with threats. Okay. I've been talking a little bit about, I've done national presentations on using some neuropsychological ve- uh, measures as part of threat assessment, which I think is not a you know, very widely used model. But for example, if we're trying to understand uh, an individual, if they don't have if they ha- don't have empathy that you can evaluate, that's very important to understand. If they don't have social skills, that's important to understand. If you're only reading overt behavior, you may be missing underlying factors that may be playing into um, that individual's motivation to make a threat. And you know, in threat assessment, we're always distinguishing between making a threat and posing a threat. And just because you make a threat doesn't mean you're posing a threat. And, and understanding some of the internal variables I have found to be very helpful, especially when we're talking about the management side of things. What do we do and how do we help remediate that? And I've had a number of clinical cases where doing some uh, neuropsychological testing has greatly helped understand why the person may have done what they've done, um, make, make the threat that they've made, but how we can move them towards a less threatening situation and help them do better and deal with their frustrations or their grievances that they may have, um, but within the context of understanding some of those neuropsychological variables. So on the topic of making a threat versus posing a threat, right? So you talk about uh, direct threats where they explicitly state the threat, but then there's cases where, uh, you know, they might put a photo. It's not even of the person, right? It could be more of a veiled threat, right? Like uh, song lyrics or a comic of another character, you know, stabbing a character, even though it's not direct. So how do you do interpretations in terms of that? Because sometimes, uh, you know, you'll have a song lyric that is not, direct i mean there's violence in the song lyric and they're sharing it just because they like the song versus they're sharing it because they're trying to hint at something like how do you distinguish that part of it some of the individuals i worry the most about mm-hmm. are one never made a direct threat and what you're seeing is it could be in their writings and in some of the presentations that i do i give examples of poetry that has <clears throat> death or dying threats in it Um, One thing we know is that there's a significant number of individuals who actually have gone on to commit, um, for example, school shootings, who are also suicidal. And so actually at one of the national meetings, a person there kind of had a very good uh, indication in saying that if a person has made, gone so far as to be willing to to engage in suicide, it isn't a big step to also engage in homicide. And so understanding individuals who are depressed is important to identify early and provide intervention. But you know, in school settings, for example, it more may be the art teacher or the, or the creative writing teacher who uh, picks up thematic material and you know, we may have in school the next budding Stephen King, but not everybody is going to be Stephen King. 
And so some of the writings may be very telling or posts online may be very telling. But, you know, if an individual has gone um, across the all the steps towards being very close to committing an act of targeted violence, they're not necessarily going to announce directly, I'm going to do this. Right. They might tell friends, you know, we've seen situations where they might tell friends, don't come to school tomorrow, but be vague about it. Um, but it's those much more subtle variables, um, art, writing, uh, photographs, um, maybe be, being very um, uh, highly focused. We were talking about people being highly focused, but on highly violent movies like, you know, natural born killers or things like that and watch movies over and over again. Um, those are the kind of variables that we, we want to identify and understand and then help that help determine if this person poses a significant threat or not. But irrespective, what can we do to divert that pathway if we can? And I, you know, had individuals I work with whose school districts have thought were highly um, you know, very scared of and highly likely to commit violence who in fact were not. And individuals who school districts have felt were the nicest, sweetest individuals that were in fact incredibly um, likely to commit acts of violence or, or had already done that but school districts may not have been aware of them. You know, we know, for example, that um, just playing first shooter violent video games mm -hmm. um, doesn't mean you're going to do that. Right. But in the context of many other variables, maybe an important variable. You know, having a hyper-focused interest in weapons may not be an issue. You may be interested, you have an interest there, but in the context of other variables, maybe an important issue. So themes in writing, content, sometimes words, sometimes themes, uh, themes in artwork, along with many other variables are all uh, variables that we look at. We look at historical variables, we look at context variables, we look at personal variables, and they're all very important in understanding. And also when we do this, we have what we call protective factors. And so there are good things. Does the person have some good social context, people who they like, you know, good friends, positive friends, or a teacher that they like and so on. Sometimes having a good positive um, religious affiliation may, you know, mediate against violence. Um, you know, having positive interests may as well. So all of these factors are important in understanding the individual. So I wonder if we could use that coffee cup analogy here as well. Like, you know, to talk about threat assessment, they might be playing FPS, first person shooters, right? But it's not like the cup is maybe just a little, like they play the game and there's no other interest in weapons. So like the cup hasn't overflowed is that is that accurate to, to look well, at it that way well it's an interesting analogy and i think we <laughs> life of course yeah. uh -huh. i'll give you an example one of the okay. things that we 
that we sometimes see is what we call folks who are injustice collectors. Mm -hmm. And that is, they don't have one grievance, they have a lot of grievances, and they keep collecting more grievances. And once your perceptions get focused in that way, you start looking for grievances. So you can say your coffee cup of grievances overflow. <laughs> um, you could also say that these many factors that we look at in terms of, you know, um, writings and thinking about, about uh, committing violence, but then planning uh, violence and practicing violence. We know in some of the school shootings that have happened, um, individuals have gone out to shooting ranges and practiced their shooting skills or built um, explosive devices and blown them up in the forest somewhere. So you can say your coffee cup fills up with different predictive variables. So, so then, on that, I guess, if you have protective factors, does it mean your cup is like larger? Because it takes, it's harder for it to overfill. And then you have risk factors, your cup is smaller, so it's like easier to overfill, overflow. I'm actually, what I was going to say, you came right on what I was going to say, uh, is that rather than get a bigger cup, yeah. I would probably say that uh, the protective factors are putting a little crack in the coffee cup so that some of the coffee can spill out the side. Oh, it, I like that. That's nice. It, it, it may lower the intensity of some mm -hmm. of these variables and some of these interests. Um, so, you know, that's why we weigh those protective factors against the predictive factors. And that's where the clinician, you know, can help put that together. But this is also within the context of a threat assessment team. Right. So it isn't one person's decision about all these factors you know if it's a within a school setting there may be a police officer there may be you know an administrator and it's really a team model um, to look at all these factors together and my role there is to bring to the table all that i've learned and understood about that person and put it in the context of what others know so that we can uh, as a team come to that decision of making a threat versus posing a threat. Be aware that what we talked about are only examples of things. And I just okay. want to reiterate that every person is unique and every person, you know, it, that I work with is to try to understand who that person is, what their strengths are, what are the concerns internally or externally, and how can we help things go in a better direction. And that's what my approach has been for as long as I've been a clinician. To any of our listeners who maybe are diagnosed with ASD or, or believe they may be at some point, like what, what would you say to them if they're listening right now? If people have concerns or interests, they should seek out you know, qualified individuals. Um, I wouldn't say that it always has to be a neuropsychologist, but a clinical psychologist or someone who, certainly when it comes to threat assessment, having being a certified threat manager is someone who has a lot of understanding about these factors but seek out qualified individuals try to get the information that you're seeking um, and be sure that you know it makes sense to you and if it doesn't ask that individual to explain it differently or in a better way so you can be a good consumer of typically a lot of complex data
What about, uh, I guess, youth who are maybe intimidated to, to ask for help or, or to kind of bring it up? Like, what would you say to those that are younger? Well, you know, sometimes people are, you know, can be intimidated by seeking help. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what often comes externally from parents or friends or colleagues. Um, help to motivate that person. It should never be viewed as a negative thing. It, you know, certainly when it comes to understanding, um, you know, autism or any mental health issue, um, that and, and everything, of course, is confidential. So, you know, you're going to learn some, maybe learn some things about yourself, and, um, and it may be helpful. And, you know, sometimes people are not ready at this moment in time to get that information, but they may be more ready at, at a later date. Okay, well, Rudy, thank you so much for uh, being part of the eighth episode of Four Degrees of Madness. Madness. Well, I'm happy to do it. Thank you very much for having me.